How do we navigate ambiguity and uncertainty? Moving beyond linear thinking into instinct and intuition, we might discover other sources within ourselves that lie beyond the boundaries of science and reason. Rupert Sheldrake is a biologist and author best known for his hypothesis of morphic resonance. His many books include The Science Delusion, The Presence of the Past, and Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work. At Cambridge University, Dr. Sheldrake worked in developmental biology as a fellow of Clare College. From 2005 to 2010, he was director of the Parrot Warwick Project for research on unexplained human and animal abilities, funded by Trinity College Cambridge. He was among the top 100 global thought leaders for 2013, as ranked by the Duttweiler Institute. Rupert Sheldrake, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Good to be with you. So how does a former biochemistry Don and Darwinian come to write a book like The Science Delusion, which takes its aim at uh, scientific dogmatism? Well, as a practicing scientist, I've spent my whole career doing scientific research. Over and over again, I've come up against blockages to scientific thinking, which really come from these dogmas, which have be, become entrenched within the sciences. Most of the 10 main dogmas of science, which I talk about in my book, The Science Delusion, which is called Science Set Free in the United States, started as assumptions, simplifying assumptions. They were harmless enough, but then people just got so used to them, became habitual, and then people assume that they're true. And when they take them all together, they think that this is the scientific worldview, and anything that goes against it must be pseudoscience. So this has become a very narrow, restrictive framework for scientific research. And I've done research in a number of different scientific areas, and in all of them, I think the research is constrained by these assumptions. So I wrote a book actually looking at the fundamental assumptions of science, turning them into questions, and instead of saying, these must be true, you've got to believe them, like a kind of scientific creed or dogma, I, I asked the question, well, are they true? Let's treat them as hypotheses instead of assumptions and see how they stack up when we look at the scientific evidence for them. So it's really an exercise in radical skepticism about the foundational principles of science as it's usually understood. It's not anti-scientific, of course. I'm all in favor of science as a process, but not in favor of science as a dogma. Yes, and some of those questions that you put forth are, are the laws of nature fixed? Is matter unconscious? Is nature purposeless? Are minds confined to our brains? Exactly. These are assumptions that most people simply take for granted. For example, the idea that the laws of nature are fixed is taken for granted by almost all scientists. And within physics, within cosmology, it leads to an enormous realm of speculation, which I think is totally unnecessary. You see, if you assume that all the laws of nature and all the constants of nature were fixed at the moment of the Big Bang, which is what most physicists do assume, then you have to explain why they're exactly as they are. And then you either come up with the idea that there's some kind of intelligent designer outside the universe that fixes them all, an engineering god who fine-tunes the laws, or uh, the view which many cosmologists adopt, that there are billions, trillions, quadrillions of actual universes, and we live in the only one that's right for us, but all the others actually exist. 
Well, this proliferation of universes was the ultimate violation of Occam's razor, the principle you should have the simplest possible explanation, plus the idea of an external designing engineering God are unnecessary if the laws of nature are not fixed at the beginning. If they evolve by natural selection, you don't need them all to be designed in advance, just like you don't have to have the design of all the animals and plants in nature laid down in advance if you have natural selection and evolution. And as you lay out, you know, through our education systems, we receive a whole series of assumptions about science and medicine. We just consider that the truth. We just start our thinking there. These are unchangeable. And in this information age, spirituality and emotional learning have largely been removed from our education systems when we need them the most. How might we reintroduce these into our education models to have this more expanded worldview? I think one thing that would help would be to actually spell out these assumptions on which the sciences are based. Because most people are never actually told these are the assumptions. It's just taken for granted. So, for example, the dogma that the mind is nothing but the activity of the brain and is confined to the inside of the head. This is taken for granted in 99% or more of neuroscience research and psychology research. But it's not the traditional view of the mind. All traditional cultures have taken the view that our minds are much more extensive than our brains. For example, in vision, when we look at anything, we see the images of what we're looking at as being outside us. I mean, I'm looking at books at the moment on a bookshelf, and I'm seeing the images of those books over there, about six feet away, on a bookshelf. Now, the official view is the image of those books is actually inside my head. I'm producing a kind of controlled hallucination inside my brain, a virtual reality display, and then imagining that these images are actually out there. I'm suggesting they actually are out there, that our minds extend outwards in every act of perception, every act of vision, and they're not confined to the inside of the head. So I think if students who were studying vision or psychology or neuroscience were presented with the possibility that the mind could be extended beyond the brain through vision and in other ways, which is what almost all traditional cultures assume, and it's actually what most people in our own culture assume. I mean, most people who are not academics find it really hard to believe that some scientists think that it's all inside their head. They find that such an incredible view. And yet, within the scientific world, uh, a lot of scientists can't believe that anyone believes the mind is extended beyond the brain. So if there were simply, you know, half an hour's discussion of this question at the beginning of a neuroscience or psychology course, people would then be aware that actually there are certain assumptions we're making here. It's not a fixed fact. It's not as if we understand consciousness. We don't. Similarly, in physics courses, the idea that the laws of nature are fixed could be laid out as an assumption. We're assuming the laws of nature are fixed. Most of science assumes this, but is it really so? In an evolving universe, why shouldn't the laws evolve? And if we think about that, then we realize that actually the whole idea of a law of nature is a metaphor. It's based on human laws. After all, dogs and cats don't obey laws, and in tribes they don't even have laws, they have customs. So it's only in civilized societies that you have laws. And then if we think through that metaphor, then actually the laws do change. The laws of Britain today are not the same as the laws of Britain a hundred years ago. So laws actually evolve. 
If this were laid out at the beginning, I think science would become much more interesting because people would see there are big questions here which we can discuss or look into instead of starting straight into a physics course with no discussion whatever of these assumptions. Yes, exactly. Too few people recognize that scientists are storytellers and it just helps simplify our understanding of the world. And even just as you discussed, the uh, perception of animals or their experience of the world is often very different from ours in terms of what they can see and the forms of light. So is intuition a form of telepathy? And why do people have problems with this word uh, telepathy? Well, the, this is a very good example of dogmatic thinking. If you assume the mind is nothing but the activity of the brain and it's all inside the head, then if I look at you from behind, there's no way I can influence you because I'm seeing an image of you inside my brain and that can't possibly affect you. But if when I look at you, there's an influence goes out of my eyes in the opposite direction to the light coming in, my mind's extending and projecting images to where I'm seeing things, then by looking at you from behind, I might be able to affect you. So can people tell when they're being looked at from behind? Well, there's a lot of evidence they can. 95% of people say they've experienced it in just their normal lives. There's now been studies, hundreds of thousands of trials in experimental tests that show this is a real phenomenon. And yet, within the scientific world, it's dismissed as pseudoscience, superstition. There's a kind of taboo against it because it violates the assumption or dogma that everything's inside the head. And the same is true of telepathy. If I think about you and I want to telephone you, and I'm thinking about you looking up your number, getting out my phone and stuff, while I'm thinking about you, if my intention reaches out and touches you in some way, you might start thinking about me. And so when I ring, you might say, well, that's funny, Rupert, I was just thinking about you. Now, telephone telepathy is the commonest kind in the modern world, according to questionnaires and surveys. 85% of people have the experience of thinking of someone who then rings or just knowing who it is when the phone rings before looking at the caller ID or answering the phone. So now, here's a subject which you can investigate scientifically, and various people have done, including me. You can do experiments to find out, is this real or is it just a coincidence? Do people think about other people all the time and then just imagine it's telepathy if one of them happens to ring and forget all the times they're wrong? So you do experiments. How I do these experiments is I find people who say this happens to them quite often. They sit at home with a landline telephone being filmed to make sure they're not using cell phones or computers. And then they give the names of four people they know well. We pick one of the four callers at random, ring them up, and ask them to call the subject. So the phone rings. They know it's one of these four people. They can't guess who it is by knowing their patterns of life or when they usually call or anything because they've been randomly selected. Before they answer the phone, they have to say who it is. If they were just guessing, they'd be right one time in four, 25%. If there's something more going on, like telepathy, they might be right more than that, and actually they are. The hit rates are around 45%. With hundreds of trials, it's very significant statistically. So here's an example. You see, if you believe that the mind is nothing but the brain and it's all inside the head, then telepathy is impossible. And there are whole organizations of people who call themselves skeptics. They're not really skeptics in the sense of wanting to find out deeper truths. 
what they're trying to do is debunk anything that goes against the dogmatic worldview of minds in the brain. So what they do is say this sort kind of research shouldn't take place, it shouldn't be funded, anyone who does it shouldn't be allowed to do it in a university, no one should be allowed to do it for a PhD or an MSc, it's pseudoscience. And then they capture all the relevant pages on Wikipedia and call it all pseudoscience. So this is a very good example, you see, what is real science? Is it real science to investigate something we don't understand that a lot of people experience by doing rational scientific experiments and publish them in peer-reviewed journals? That's what I do and some of my colleagues do, which I think of as real science. Or is it real science to say it's impossible, this research shouldn't take place, people who do it should be ridiculed or attacked on Wikipedia. It shouldn't be taught in universities, shouldn't be mentioned in psychology courses except to dismiss it, and so on. So here's a very good example of where dogma inhibits research and blocks people's thinking. Yes, and I'm also wondering in this dual way of looking at the world, or maybe a pluralistic way of looking at the world, where this science and dogma and with all its great discoveries, but also is limiting, and then this spiritual sense or this belief in their many things that we cannot know and the things beyond what we can see. It's also true in our individualistic society, there may be those who are quite numb to the sense of the mind extending beyond the brain or telepathy or spirituality because they are not living in, as you mentioned, a communal society. Or it seems to me also this kind of telepathic sense might be linked to like an animal's uh, survival instinct, like we see in the murmuration mm. of starlings. We see it across the animal world with whales mm. singing over great distances and all the, their migration patterns and all this collective received memory. Well, I think these are basic animal abilities, yes. I've done a lot of work on telepathy in animals. I wrote a book called Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. And in that, I looked at many examples of telepathy with animals, dogs, cats, horses, parrots, and other animals, which are often much more telepathic than human beings. I, I think telepathy is a normal means of communication within animal societies, among wolves, for example, when they're separated by hundreds of miles, as they often are. They go out hunting, they leave their cubs behind in the den, and over enormous distances, they still seem to be in touch, as naturalists have observed. And so I think that Telepathy is normal, not paranormal, natural, not supernatural, and part of our animal nature. Many dogs know when their owners are coming home. They go and wait at a door or a window. Cats also do this. And I've done experiments which are designed to find out, is this real or is it just an illusion? Do the pet owners just imagine it's happening? Do they just remember times when the dog's right and forget all the times the dog's wrong? So in our experiments, we film the place the dog waits. We have the owner go at least five miles away, so they're way beyond the range of smell or sound. And then at random times, we communicate with them on a mobile phone, tell them when to come home. So they don't know in advance when they're coming. No one at home knows when they're coming. We film the dog, and when they form the intention to come home at a random time, the dog starts waiting for them at the door or window over and over again. And it's nothing to do with smell, because this can happen before they've even left the building they're in. It's the intention to come home. It's not to do with car sounds, because it happens with unfamiliar vehicles. It does seem to be telepathic. So here again is a fascinating area of research of great interest to many dog and cat owners. 
But I don't think there's a single university in the world where this research is going on because the taboo against it is so strong. Even though it's harmless, it's inexpensive, you know, it hardly costs anything to do this research. It's very interesting to large numbers of people. It could promote public engagement with science. Yet it's taboo because it goes against the dogma that the mind is nothing but the brain and it's inside the head and therefore these things are impossible. The main arguments put forward by so-called skeptics, for example, Steven Pinker, who's a well-known rationalist and who wrote a book called Rationality, he's a committed materialist, so he believes the mind is nothing but the activity of the brain. In his book, he says we don't need to look at the evidence for these subjects, like telepathy, because they're impossible, or practically impossible, and therefore any evidence must be flawed. That's the view of many leading members of the skeptic movement. So here we have again an example of something that's purely dogmatic, not real skepticism, which is about looking at evidence and critical thinking. It's a purely blind faith in, in a scientific dogma, which I think is very restrictive for the sciences. And it also makes science boring. It puts off young people and it alienates large numbers of people from the scientific endeavor. Yes. And so I guess presently data, what's being collected is doubling every two years on the planet. It's constantly being stored and transmitted by Wi-Fi and different means. It's using more and more energy. How do you think this affects the ability of humans and animals to remain open and receptive? Obviously, there's an enormous overload of information. There's huge numbers of papers published in scientific journals, which go up every year. But if you look at the citation of those, and most of them are never cited by anyone ever. I don't think anyone ever reads most of them. Most of them are published simply so that academics can get promotion or get grants. Because the way you get promoted in a scientific institution all over the world is through bibliometric measurements. The number of papers you publish, the citation index of the journal that they're published in, and so on. You just do a simple arithmetical sum, add all this up, and someone who's got a higher score than someone else is going to be promoted over somebody else. And so there are now all these paper factories that produce fake scientific papers. People pay lots of money for this because they need it for their career. Huge numbers of scientific papers are now generated with fake data. And it's a terrible scourge in the scientific world. There are predatory journals that claim to be peer-reviewed that are publishing very dodgy papers. Most scientific papers, even in the best journals, are now known to be not replicable. There's a serious crisis within science. And I think this is uh, partly because of the perverse incentives in science. You get ahead not by making real discoveries that change the world, not by making people's lives better, but by publishing more papers in peer-reviewed journals. Yes, I guess more specifically, I was wondering, with all of this data, just in the same way that you see whales being breached on the shore or the noise pollution in the waters, they can't navigate, and you see the same thing with birds, how might that be affecting us on, on a deeper level? Well, I mean, we all live in an electronic smog for a start. We all live surrounded by telephone communications, Wi-Fi devices, etc. Since our cells are electromagnetic and our brain activities electromagnetic. It's hard to believe that this is having no effect on any of us. Uh, it's almost impossible to avoid it. I mean, I have all my computers on wires. All my devices are wired. I don't have a mobile phone. I have telephones with wires. 
So I'm rather old-fashioned in the sense that I don't actually want to live in an electronic smog because I think it's unhealthy and maybe having long-term effects, which we don't know about yet. On the other hand, I can't really avoid it. If I turn on my computer and turn on the Wi-Fi thing, there's, there's dozens of Wi-Fi networks that are coming into my home and into my office from neighbours, and there's all the mobile phone transmissions, all the radio and TV transmissions. And we don't know what effect they're having. We don't know to what extent they're responsible for the decline in insect life all around the planet, for some of the loss of biodiversity. We don't know to what extent they play a part in increasing rates of cancer or in mental disturbances or in children born with autism and so forth. All these things could be influenced by them, but we don't know. And obviously, there's enormous vested interests in stopping us knowing or not wanting to ask the question, because the whole world economy now depends on digital technologies, cell phones, computers, wireless transmissions, satellites. All these systems provide millions and millions of people with employment and stuff. No big company or government will want to fund this research because it could have catastrophic economic consequences. So in the meanwhile, I think the most sensible thing we can do is try and reduce our own personal exposure to these things and the exposure of our children. Yeah, I think maybe we can't know yet about cancers, and I don't want to be alarmist about that. But I think in this sense of what's very important to you, this kind of intuitive intelligence, I, it might be dampening that. Well, let me just go back one step to the technologies. Actually, paradoxically, I think telepathy and intuition have increased as a result of modern technologies as a result of telephones, which after all only started at the beginning of the 20th century. People started being able to ring each other up with copper wires and phones, and they didn't become enormously widespread until quite recently. Before that, if you wanted to get in touch with someone at a distance, you might have tried to do it telepathically if you were a theosophist or something, but most people wouldn't have tried. But now you know you can ring anyone up anywhere in the world at any time. And so you believe it's possible to be in touch. You intend to get in touch with people and so on. And telephone telepathy and now email telepathy and SMS telepathy and stuff have all increased enormously because people spend so much time with telephones. So I think actually telepathy has sort of gone along with these telecommunication systems. It wasn't intended to do that. People who developed these things didn't say, let's find a way of encouraging telepathy. But as an unexpected byproduct of all these technologies, um, it's become much more common. Hi, Dr. Sheldrake. Thanks for taking my question. If all knowledge and memories are shared, then no one, not even the most consummate artist, can be said to produce an original idea. We're all necessarily pulling from a shared pool of images and impressions that may evolve over time, but never attains real novelty. Do you think this casts the purpose of the artist in a new light? Are artists simply curators of all the greatest ideas that collective mankind has ever managed to dream up? Well, that's a very uh, important question. I think a certain amount of creativity is drawing upon what's already there. You know, all artists are influenced by other artists and by other things in the collective culture. But there's also true creativity. And I think that my own view of morphic resonance as collective memory would say that all of us draw upon unconsciously as well as consciously on a collective memory. And all animals draw on a collective memory of their kind as well. But if they only drew on the collective memory, they'd only be able to repeat or repermutate things that have already happened. And evolution would slow down and grind to a halt eventually. 
Yet we know that the entire cosmos is an evolutionary process, the cosmic development since the Big Bang. Everything has evolved, chemicals, molecules, life, planets, stars, everything has evolved. So it's not just a matter of permutating what's already there. There's true creativity involved in nature, and it's only through the interplay of habit and creativity, or collective memory and creativity, that truly new things can happen. So I think artists are engaged in that process, as indeed scientists are, or inventors, or anyone who's doing anything new. We don't know where it comes from, but there's true creativity involved in evolution, both human and natural. Tell us a little bit about your educational path. I know you worked in India and Malaya. How did that expand your vision of the world? Well, when I first went to India in 1968, I was on my way to Malaysia to work at the University of Malaya on tropical rainforest plants. I was very keen to work in the tropics because biology is much more exuberant in tropical countries. I mean, the richest floras and faunas are in the tropics. And as a biologist, I wanted to have some personal experience of that. So that was my motive for going. I had a grant from the Royal Society to do this. But I traveled through India and Sri Lanka on the way to Malaysia. And then after my time at the University of Malaya, I traveled back via Thailand to Cambodia and Laos. So I saw something of Southeast Asia. I was immensely impressed by uh, these different cultures because here were cultures completely unlike anything I'd been brought up with with highly intelligent people, very sophisticated worldviews, spiritual practices like meditation, which I thought were enormously important and helpful. So it literally expanded my mind as to the possibilities of human culture, knowledge, and experience, and helped jolt me out of a narrowly mechanistic framework of thinking within which I'd been brought up. It also made me aware of a whole range of religious and spiritual practices that I hadn't known about before. That was in 1968 to 69. Later in 1974, going right through to 1985, I was mainly living in India, where I had a job in the International Agricultural Research Institute for the semi-arid tropics in Hyderabad. I was the principal plant physiologist and then the consultant plant physiologist. So I was working with Indian colleagues, with Indian farmers too, because being in agriculture, I had spent time in villages working with farmers. And again, was enormously impressed by the riches and the depth of Indian culture and the spiritual practices that go with it. Of course, India is a very multicultural society. I had many Muslim friends, I had Jain friends, I had Buddhist friends, as well as Christian friends, and of course, many Hindu friends. So all these different cultures and practices and made me aware of possibilities that I just hadn't known about before. You wrote about this in your books, Science and Spiritual Practices and Ways to Go Beyond. Yes. In those books, I discussed seven different spiritual practices, which have been investigated scientifically. And why I wrote the books is because I'm both a scientist and a spiritual inquirer. And I tried these various spiritual practices over the years. And there's now been a lot of scientific studies of spiritual practices that show that, in general, they make people happier, healthier, and live longer. They're not just things people do out of blind faith for no reason. They're not just mumbo-jumbo, as they're often dismissed by skeptics and atheists. And for meditation, for example, there's now a great deal of research. 
that shows that it can reduce blood pressure, reduce stress levels, help people sleep better, reduce depression and anxiety, make people calmer, and protect against depression. I mean, now on the British National Health Service, psychiatrists can give you a prescription for a meditation course instead of antidepressants, because it's been found it works just as well, if not better, and it's cheaper and has far fewer side effects. So I think there's now overwhelming evidence that meditation can have benefits, scientific evidence. And even militant atheists like Sam Harris have taken up meditation. In fact, he's now giving online meditation courses. So it's an interesting phenomenon that atheists, who are traditionally against all religions and spirituality, have now discovered that actual spiritual practices can be beneficial. But yoga is well established as having many health benefits. Fasting, which is found in all religious traditions, has numerous health benefits, both physical and mental. It can lead to altered states of consciousness. Of course, it's free. So no one does research on fasting or hardly anyone because it wouldn't benefit any drug company or to, to do this because fasting isn't just free. It actually saves you money because you don't have to buy food that you would otherwise have eaten. I myself fast every year during Holy Week just before Easter for about four days, no food, just liquids. And I find it's a really good way of cleaning out the system and also not taking food for granted. So there's many benefits from fasting. Pilgrimage is another practice I discuss in my book, Science and Spiritual Practice. And all cultures have pilgrimed one kind or another. You know, in India, there are many pilgrimages to the great temples, to the source of the Ganges, to holy mountains like Mount Kailash in Tibet. Buddhists go on pilgrimages to the birthplace of the Buddha. There are pilgrimages in Christian countries to great cathedrals or shrines of saints. Muslims go to Mecca and to the shrines of Sufi saints. People in traditional shamanic societies have holy places they go on pilgrimages to. It's very universal. And there are many benefits to pilgrimage. Of course, fresh air, walking, doing something intentional. And in Europe, there's a, a really interesting pilgrimage revival movement going on a very wide scale. I mean, the most obvious example is Santiago de Compostela in Spain, which in 2019 had about 350,000 pilgrims walking there, compared with 1,000 in about 1987. So there's been enormous growth of pilgrimage movements. And I think it represents, in many ways, a kind of physical expression of a spiritual quest, which many people are feeling. That's another spiritual practice which doesn't require any particular prior beliefs. Most people who go to Santiago to Compostela are not devout Roman Catholics. Some of them are agnostic, some of them are spiritual but not religious, and so on. One of perhaps the most surprising spiritual practices is sports, because it turns out that many people find that playing games or taking part in sports has an enormous spiritual effect for them. And I think this is partly because spiritual practices in general are about coming into the present. Meditation is all about letting go of discursive thoughts and becoming more centered in the present. Now, in sports, you just have to be in the present. You know, if you're 50 feet up a rock face, climbing, especially without ropes, then the only thing that matters is the finger holds and the toe holds and stuff. You can't be worrying about whether you paid the gas bill or something like that. If you're in the middle of a football game and someone's passed you the ball and people are coming to tackle you, you have to be completely in the present. 
Even watching a football game, people experience this vicariously. The whole crowd's movements, the moods and expectations and disappointments and excitement just ripple through the whole crowd. So I think for many people, sports are a way of coming into the present and often give people a sense of a spiritual connection with a consciousness greater than their own. So uh, it's not normally portrayed as a spiritual practice, but I think in the modern world, sports fulfill that role for many people. My name is Donna Sanders. I'm a graduate student studying literature at Columbia University. As I listen to this thought-provoking dialogue between Dr. Sheldrake and Mia, I'm reminded of the curious ways in which art, like science, can embrace and engage with spirituality. Though we tend to strictly divide modern society into secular and non-secular spheres, the great elasticity of the human mind demands that rational life and spiritual life must sometimes merge together. Indeed, the notion that faith and reason stand perpetually opposed is about as fragile and subjective as all those other scientific dogmas that Dr. Sheldrake mentioned earlier in the episode. Increasingly, we're discovering that the mind and the spirit are profoundly bound up. Artistry is a perfect example to this point. It combines assiduous mental activity, planning and deliberation with spontaneous creativity. We just heard that athletics can make for a very salutary spiritual practice among groups of players and spectators. It occurs to me that theater, especially live theater, might produce a similar effect on the mind and the physical body. Theater is, of course, an ideal representation of communal activity. It obliges entire companies of strangers to come together under one roof and share a potentially profound emotional experience. In any truly successful performance, the million instincts, urges, and feelings represented by the actors on stage are transferred almost mesmerically to an attentive audience. Theater communicates a story, but also a state of mind. It relies, perhaps, on its own kind of telepathic function, in which dozens and hundreds of discrete minds are united freely and spontaneously, if only on a subconscious level. There is, I'm sure, an empirical, rational explanation for this phenomenon, but the fact that theater admits of scientific theorization does not make it any less spiritual. As Dr. Sheldrake explained earlier, the bounds of science and scientific processes are far broader than we've been conditioned to believe. Artists and scientists, we might almost say, have a shared responsibility to continuously explore, question, and redefine these boundaries, removing unhelpful blocks and outdated assumptions wherever possible. Now, back to the interview. And you, I believe, also returned to the Anglican faith. When did that happen, and you know what inspired you to return to it? Well, I went through, like many people who studied science, at least in my generation, a conversion to atheism. My parents were Christians. I went to an Anglican boarding school. But during my scientific education, I became an atheist and thought there's nothing but scientific facts and religion's out of date and science represents progress, all those kind of standard attitudes. But I began to doubt that, partly because I began to doubt the dogmas of science itself. I found it too restrictive, too narrow. I was studying biology because I loved animals and plants. And it didn't take me long to notice the first thing we did to study animals or plants was to kill them. So we were really studying death, not life. So I felt something had gone wrong in science. I began to question the dogmas of science. The beginnings of that process began when I was an undergraduate at Cambridge. But when I traveled through Asia, through India, and then Sri Lanka, and living in Malaysia, 
being among people who were mainly religious in one way or another, and I was exposed to people of many different religious traditions, it didn't seem to me that they were stupid and ridiculous, as the atheist propaganda tells you. It tells you anyone who believes in religion is feeble-minded, doesn't understand science, needs to have some kind of blind faith in something to give them consolation because they can't face up to the reality of life, etc. Instead of finding these religious people I met in Asia fitting that atheist stereotype, I found people who were lively, curious, interested, funny, whose faith really gave them great strength and resilience, and a much deeper sense of the nature of the mind through meditation and through prayer and through spiritual practices like fasting and pilgrimage. So that made me much more interested, and I took up meditation and yoga. And then when I was working in India, I explored Hindu ideas in much more detail. But then I realized that being from England, from a Christian background, it was much more natural for me to follow a Christian path. I felt much more in accordance with my you know, habits, traditions, culture. And so it wasn't exactly a sudden switch. I started going to Anglican services. I was confirmed in the Church of South India, which is an Anglican church. And it didn't mean I was no longer interested in yoga. I do yoga every day. And I meditate and did yoga this morning. So it's part of my life. It's not a matter of rejecting other traditions. It's a matter of re-grounding myself in my own. I'm not an evangelical Anglican in the sense that I think everyone should become an Anglican. But I think people whose background is Christian and Anglican are probably better off following the tradition of their ancestors. I think people who come from Muslim backgrounds better off following a Muslim path or Hindu backgrounds following a Hindu path. But in the West, there's a tendency for people who come from Christian backgrounds to turn atheist and to reject their own tradition. And if they take up any kind of spirituality, it has to be from some other tradition. Some people call this the ABC attitude, anything but Christian. So, you know, shamanic drumming, Native American dream catchers, a bit of yoga or Buddhism light. That's a typical kind of new agey mix of things. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with these practices. I've written books about them. But I think it's helpful for this to be grounded in a tradition, in holy places, in a tradition of music, of song, of culture. So, for example, I go to church every Sunday if I can, wherever I am. And one reason is that it connects me with the local holy place where people have prayed for centuries. Another reason is it's a local community, and there are very few other sources of local community left in the modern individualistic world. I sing together with people I love singing, and it means I sing with people from my community. We pray together, we chat afterwards, so keep up with each other's lives. It's a, a community-centered activity. And then through the year, there's the various festivals, obviously Christmas and Easter, but all the other festivals which give a structure to time. Now, all religions have these. They have a series of festivals and collective celebrations. I think these are really important parts of human life. And if we don't follow our own traditions, then it's harder to follow other people's traditions because, you know, if you live in a town in the north of England, if you start following Tibetan Buddhism, then all your neighbors haven't even heard of most of these things. So it's harder for it to be collected, it becomes a much more individualist thing. Whereas if you follow 
Christian tradition is that you're more in tune with the community. So for me, that works. And I think it works for other people. As long as their own traditions are not oppressive, you know, some forms of fundamentalist religion can become oppressive and even destructive. But that's, I think, a relatively rare exception. And certainly in modern Europe, that's very rarely the case. Yes. Well, I think that your practices, your spiritual path really shows when you, you glow with it. And I, I think it's wonderful that more people should have this sense of community and tradition. It goes back to those theories of resonance and collective memory. Can I ask what you were like as a, a young boy? Well, I was born in 1942. So the first three years of my life was during the Second World War and there were bombs falling. Our home was near a ball bearing factory, which was a primary military target. So I don't remember the first three years of my life, but it obviously must have affected me because you know, my parents had to take me into bomb shelters and things, and there were fires and destruction around. And then until I was about 11 or 12, after the war in Britain, we had rationing, and you couldn't just go into a shop and buy what you wanted. You had to have little coupons, and each person was allowed, I think, two ounces of butter a week, and about two ounces of sugar, and two ounces of sweets, and each family could only have a certain amount of coal for heating the house, and clothes were rationed too. So I grew up in this post-war austere world where people didn't have very much in the way of luxuries. But it was a, a much simpler world to grow up in, and I really appreciated it. I mean, the close family ties. We grew a lot of our own food in, in the garden. We didn't travel far. When we went on family outings, my mother, father, and my brother and I, we went on our bicycles, and we went into the countryside around my hometown. It was a much simpler form of life, which in many ways was happier for many people, because what makes people happy is not having lots and lots of stuff. It's feeling a sense of belonging and connection with others. I certainly felt that. And I kept a lot of pets. I was very interested in animals. We had a dog, I had a rabbit. I kept tadpoles and caterpillars because I was interested in their metamorphosis into frogs and into butterflies. I kept pigeons, I had budgerigars, so I had birds in my life, two tortoises and a mouse, and a gerbil, and a hamster. So I, I had a lot of pets, and I did biology because I was very keen on animals and plants. My father was a herbalist, so he taught me about the names of plants, and we often walked in the country and sometimes collected his own herbs. And he was also a pharmacist, so he interested me in science, and in particular in biological sciences. And he was an amateur microscopist, so he had a microscope laboratory with big brass microscopes in glass domes and took pictures through a camera which used old-style glass plates. So my father did a great deal to open my eyes to the natural world. Animals, plants, the microscopic realm, and the stars and the heavens and music. My family were all musical. My grandfather was a church organist. My uncle was a church organist. My mother and father both played instruments. We used to sing together at home. So nature and music were very big influences on my childhood and have remained with me ever since. I still play the piano and I play the organ. I play the piano every day, so it's very much part of my life. It has been since I was five years old. 
That's a beautiful ideal offering, despite the rationing and everything, the slowness of discovering for yourself and not being told. I think that maybe sets some of that foundation about there are many truths and the truths that you can discover. You talked about your father encouraging you to you know, use a telescope and examine the universe at a distance. You've written about the universe being alive, whereas we assume that it's not. Well, I mean, the, the traditional view in all societies all around the world is that nature's alive, you know, that there's a flow of forces and interacting forces and has many different philosophical foundations like yin and yang in Taoist philosophy in China and in India, it's simply taken for granted that earth is alive, the stars are alive. People have hymns to the sun and to the stars. In animistic or shamanic societies, it's taken for granted that animals and plants are truly alive and the earth is alive. And in Europe, it, all this was taken for granted through the Middle Ages and when our great medieval cathedrals were built, you know, like Chartres in France or Lincoln in England. These great cathedrals were built in a world where people thought the whole world was alive, the earth was alive, the sun and the stars and the planets were living beings. It's only since the 17th century with the scientific revolution that we've had the idea that nature is dead, mechanical, inanimate and unconscious. And these are some of the foundational assumptions built into the scientific worldview which we started off by discussing. This idea of nature as being dead, mechanical, purposeless, is, I think, a very narrow view. And it's based on the idea that nature is like a machine. Well, only humans make machines, and only modern humans make, have made machines. And so what we're doing is taking something we make and using that as a metaphor for the whole of nature, whereas machines are actually the worst metaphor for nature. It's much better to think of the universe as like a living organism than like a machine. Worldview, which came in the 17th century, is one of those dogmas of science. It's the first and foremost dogma of, of the whole of modern scientific thinking. But luckily, there's a movement going on within science and philosophy in Europe and America at the moment to recover a sense of nature being alive called panpsychism, the idea that psyche or mind is everywhere in nature, that self-organizing systems are kind of organisms, and animals, also molecules, atoms, all the self-organizing systems, crystals, stars, solar systems, planets. All of these are in some sense alive with some kind of mind, experience, or consciousness. Now, this doesn't apply to aggregates, things that are mere things that are put together, like tables, chairs, cups, computers, cars. Man-made machines are not self-organizing. They don't just grow like plants in a garden. They have to be put together artificially. And so machines are the one exception, really. They're the worst possible metaphor for the rest of nature. And I think the traditional view that the world's like an organism is a much better metaphor. And I think this panpsychist movement that's happening within science and philosophy is helping to return us to that older view, but of course, not just going back to a pre-modern view, but arriving at it again at a higher turn of the spiral in a post-mechanistic scientific world. Finally, as you think about the future and education, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Oh, well, that's a huge question. Obviously, it's important to know about our own cultures and something about world history. I think it's important to be aware of traditions and including the religious traditions of our cultures because they help to integrate and connect us. To abandon them means we're disintegrated and disconnected. 
obviously everyone needs to know about science and technology because they're such an important part of the modern world. But I would begin scientific courses by making it clear what's open questions and what are simply assumptions, as I already discussed. I think it's important to be introduced to the culture, literature, music, and other forms of art and architecture, and the great buildings. Every ancient civilization has wonderful buildings as part of its culture, you know, like the great cathedrals of Europe or the temples of India. I think it's very important to connect with those as well. Nowadays, people's memories are probably getting worse because they look everything up on, on cell phones all the time. But I think learning certain things by heart is very important because it means they're then part of our being. Nothing can take them from us. So I think learning a few key prayers and poems appropriate to the culture one's growing up in are very important things to do as well. And that's not very much part of modern education. And of course, learning to sing and to dance and to celebrate and the elements of basic sports. And uh, all these things are very important too. It's not just a matter of looking at screens most of the time. So I think these are some of the things which are important. And I think that learning things by heart is important too, like poetry or prayers. Well, this has been such an inspiring conversation. Thank you, Rupert Sheldrake, for opening our minds to question fundamental dogmas of science, to embrace what we can see and cannot see, to expand our understanding of the nature of the mind and our vision of the world. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Good. Well, I'm glad I had a chance to be with you. Thank you. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Donna Sanders with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producers on this episode were Katie Foster and Donna Sanders. One Planet Podcast is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Gagne. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.